Welcome to Elements of Styles, the business podcast that trades in scarce thinking for community, conversation, and ideas in abundance. Each week, I, Mark Styles, sit with professionals and entrepreneurs, both local and global, and learn how they each add value to their communities, their partners, and their teams. Please enjoy. Hey, welcome back to Elements of Styles. Today, we're going to collaborate with the Dr. Joe Show, of which I'm a co-host. This was an amazing episode, and I really wanted to share it with you in case you hadn't already heard it. Please enjoy. Tom, I wonder if you could introduce our guest for tonight. Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight, we have Barrett Mikulik. Barrett Mikulik is the director of the Center for Advancing Interprofessional Practice, Education, and Research, or CAPER, and an associate professor in the Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. A sociologist by training, Mikulik's research examines socialization and professionalization processes and mechanisms nested within health professions, education, and practice, most notably those impacting socio-emotional and team-based skills and attributes. His work also explores disparities in health, healthcare, and within the health professions, with a focus on how structural designs of pre-professional pathways may perpetuate the lack of diversity of the healthcare workforce. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, welcome, Barrett. No problem. It's so good, Barrett. Can you can you just do me a favor, real quick? Can you just translate your bio, please? <laughs> right. I know. As he's reading, and, it, I'm like, well, this is a this is all a cloudy mess. Right. So um, tell us, tell us about this. So, so my research, uh, a majority of my work is looking at kind of the ingredients of what makes good team members. So it's specifically in the healthcare fields and health professions education. So how can we cultivate good team members uh, for healthcare delivery and patient-centered care? Um, and as a sociologist, I bring a little bit um, a different flair to it um, compared to majority of the people involved in what we call interprofessional education, which I'm sure you've heard about, um, are, are mostly on the clinical side. Uh, and so I come with it in terms of bringing more psychosocial theories and concepts, so theories and concepts from sociology, psychology, even anthropology, uh, into the mix and say, have we, have we thought about this? Mm. Or how could we use this theory to help kind of better our understanding of this element of teamwork? Uh, and, and so that's what I do. That's kind of the main aspect. And that's what my center does. We take that science and then translate that science into uh, e-learning courses to help train and educate um, health professionals and health profession students. The flip side, not flip side, but the other side of my research is really examining the, the, the pathways to medical school, to nurse through nursing school, PA, PT, and say, okay, why aren't we seeing broader diversification of the healthcare workforce, even though we're calling for it? So the, I, I kind of, the, 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 phrase I always use is the the system is perfectly designed to get to get the results it gets. Mm. So if we don't really review the system of how this works, then we're just going to keep on getting the same outcomes and output. So I go back and look through it from an organizational perspective and say, okay, what are we doing here and there where we could be opening the doors a little bit wider? What are the things we're not looking at? One of the best sayings from a sociologist is kind of sociologists make the familiar strange. Huh. And so that's that's what we do. That's one of my favorite things, right? Uh, and so we we kind of bring all of these things up to the surface and say, hey, hey, take a look at this. This is this is what happened. You might have gotten used to this and take it for granted, but it it could be impacting in very dynamic ways. Yeah, but Barrett, that's how we've always done it. We've always done it that way, Barrett. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so that's why it's working so so well. 
right? That's right. why we're having the outcomes that we want so, so well. That's why we're having, you know, in terms of our health outcomes, in terms of our diversification outcomes. So we just, you know, it takes sometimes a different lens. Hmm. And and if if we are trying to adjust the pathway, yeah, we first like adjust the test because you know well, I, I I'm a physician. I had to take yeah, ridiculous exactly. tests. Yeah, okay, they were yeah. only they were only measuring a certain you know very narrow area. So yeah, we changed. That's just and, and one of the interesting things about that test is is the cost of it, mm-hmm. right? And not just and then you know then so you get the initial cost and then if you want to. Uh, take it another time, there's an additional cost. Or if you want to reschedule it, there's additional cost, plus all the prep work that goes into it that requires additional financial resources, uh, plus all the other types of uh, prerequisites in terms of shadowing hours, volunteer hours, all the things that may take kind of what we'll call uh, social and cultural capital, you know, knowing people in the mix that might be able to make connections for you to get those shadowing opportunities or the cultural capital of really understanding how the game is played in terms of what extracurriculars are gonna look the best on your application for this particular school and how do you get those, right? So there's a number of things, the MCAT's a great one, but there's a number of other ways that are, are barriers for, for particular types of students who may not come with the kind of privilege that other students come in with. Uh, and so I've gone around trying, you know, giving this talk a number of times and trying to uh, help admissions committees open their eyes a little bit more to looking at a broader range of students by looking at what they're requiring and saying, okay, is that, are these serving as barriers to some extent? Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, given what we're talking about tonight, examining imposter phenomenon through the lens of humility, spotlighting conceptual disconnections. Yeah. Did you think there's a correlation with what you just said? You know, that it's like the, the game is rigged a little bit. For right. people to get to medical school, I mean, all right. Yeah. Does that contribute, do you think, to the prevalence of imposter phenomenon mm. within those medical students? So you have, like, with imposter uh, phenomena, you have kind of this situational, contextual um, inaccuracy in your abilities and your own self-concept, kind of believing in this kind of fraudulence, this intellectual fraudulence. And so that can definitely happen when um, you are presented with a place that does not feel familiar and where there's a number of other high achievers. I mean, one of the most interesting things about medical school, I remember when I first did my dissertation way back in the day and I was talking to a number of medical students, one of the most interesting things I heard was, you know, I was such a rock star at college and I come here and they're all rock stars. And so you come in there and you see that everyone is doing is doing amazing things and challenging things. And for some, that can be uh, that can raise up these feelings of feeling like an imposter. Hmm. Yeah, because you're maybe not as cool as you thought you were because you're <laughs> cool people. Well, or or there was an there's underlying you know kind of maybe conditions, uh, underlying anxieties, underlying depressions that may have already been existing that this then brings to the surface, or there's just a, a, um, a lack of confidence in one's ability. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, whether it's, it, it's, so the two key things about imposter phenomena is the lack of confidence and the lack of authentic um, self-concept. So lack of accuracy in self-concept. And so those things can be triggered by a number of elements of medical school or any other type of kind of high achieving 
uh, arena, which the studies have all shown, right? So we find people coming into these arenas and then this this happening to some extent because it's a new, whether it's a new school or a new job or a new position. To some extent, it then triggers these feelings of inaccuracy or, or feelings of inadequacy and lack of confidence in this kind of this sense of fraudulence mm-hmm. amongst others. Like I'm going to be found out at any moment they're going to find me out that I don't belong at this particular place. Yeah. And those feelings then can lend to a lack of productivity, a lack of taking on additional challenges. Uh, and even, even can have been found in research to actually uh, perpetuate or exacerbate elements of depression and anxiety. Uh, and so working through those can be remarkably challenging uh, and they take an extensive amount of time to kind of feel one of the key elements and, and just stop me when I go off because I'll go off on tangents all day. One of the one of the interesting things that needs to be studied more and it's just like it, it's just starting coming to the surface, but it hasn't yet really been connected with imposter phenomena is the notion of belongingness. And enhancing one's or or a group's sense of belongingness to an organization or social structure in which they feel as though they're a part of that. They're a valued and necessary part that they have a voice, that they feel uh, they can be authentic, that they feel heard. You can imagine just by me saying these things that that can then have a positive impact on those that self-confidence and that accuracy of self. Absolutely. Is there an element of... How do I say this? Uh, I don't belong in this community and I belong in the next curve, Mm. yet maybe I don't. Mm -hmm. So I can't get to that next curve either. I need to be held back Mm. with the community. Uh, So personally, I'm not fully aware of research that specifically talks to that. What I do know about belonging, uh, just in, in a couple of workshops that I've led and, and some work that we've done within the, the college itself, um, has really been this notion of a fit of values, personal values, tying to the organization's values. So um, as well as kind of that feeling of connectedness with relationships in that organization. So to your point, to your question, if, if folks don't feel, if an individual feels as though, hey, I'm not connecting, I don't have a lot of great relationships, uh, they don't have to be the best things in the world, but people you can at least connect with uh, in this organization on a consistent basis. And then also, hey, my values aren't aligned with this organizational values. Now, the tricky part of that part is what, you know, kind of what is said are the values that are written on like the kind of mission statements and things like that. And then what's actually practiced. So that's a tricky part of belongingness that we need to kind of tease out in, in more kind of a qualitative ethnographic type of research. But again, back getting back to your question, that's where I can see people feeling like I don't necessarily belong in this particular cohort or this particular wave. And I need to find a new opportunity. I mean, you're seeing that a ton with, where folks were leaving after COVID, their jobs are changing jobs. They, I think the, the, the rose-colored glasses were off and folks saw like, hey, actually businesses care about bottom lines. I may not be a necessity. I may be a cog in a wheel here and not really an individual. So I need to find a place where I can feel as though I fit. But the sign said we're a family here. The yeah. sign said we're a family, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. So I'm curious. <clears throat> so I can understand if, if you don't feel like you fit into a group and you want to 
be part of another group where you feel yeah. valued. But what about the imposter phenomenon? What about when you want to be part of that group, right. but you don't think you deserve to be part of that group? I'm not worthy. I'm yeah, not I'm worthy. Not worthy. They not really, yeah, exactly. And so it, it's, it may not be a sense of, of not feeling worthy so much as I'm not good enough. Yeah. And it's worthy. I, I use worthy in a different way. You're definitely, I think people might feel worthy of being a, a part of the organization, but they may not feel as though they're smart enough or have achieved enough to be considered in the same uh, breath of how we're talking about, you know, others in the same organization. And so this notion of being found out, like, I, you know, oh, someone's going to read this paper or someone's going to uh, see this score and they're going to realize, oh, like, who are you? Why? Are, how did we pick this? And so folks will, you know, start to make up those scenarios where it was because of uh, their charm um, or because someone made a mistake um, or because they know so-and-so. And so they got lucky. Yeah, it got lucky is another great one. I, oh, it just kind of happened, kind of fell in my lap. Um, and so those are the games that we'll play with ourselves when we don't feel like we fit because of our, our, our abilities or our, our talents aren't, you know, don't fit there. Um, or we think that again, it's, it's, it's not true. And that's the, that's the, the kicker is that it's a game that we've kind of created for ourselves, um, which is really interesting. And so what's the, what's the antidote? So I think one of the antidotes for imposter phenomena, it, it's not going to be like constant accolades. Uh, you know, that's just not going to, that's going to fuel a fire. Again, I think it's cultivating a culture of acknowledgement within an organization where it's not a constant, like you're doing great, you're doing great, but letting people know, you know, hey, I saw what you did there. I saw whether it's a small little bit of work or a great big job, you're acknowledging individuals on a consistent basis uh, from leadership. So leadership is saying, I see this and it's good. And then, and this is how you're feeding into the broader culture. Um, I think it's also cultivating a culture of belonging in terms of understanding how individuals, you know, talking about how individuals work fits within an organization. Uh, but also it's 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 having relationships in which people are able to connect, um, not feel isolated or alone, um, to make those connections and have that kind of emotional good stuff come through, through them uh, and, and kind of move along in time. This is one of, again, where the research needs to go with imposter phenomena is that it, it we need to see longitudinal. Does it, when does it fade? How does it does it, how does it does it take a year? Does it take two? Does it depend how, on the how, context? Yeah. How old is how old when it starts? I mean, exactly. Developmentally, we don't see imposter. We don't hear about imposter phenomena now. Again, I'm not familiar with this type of research, but I, in the research that I've done, I wasn't really familiar with the uh, developmental aspect of imposter phenomena. We tend mm -hmm. to see it. Most of the research has been done on adults entering the workforce or entering medical school or other type of high high productivity type of schools, high achievement type of elements. So it would be interesting to look at it at a developmental stage, yeah. if it hasn't already. Doesn't that relate back to the social domain, Dr. Joe? I mean, if we're if we're saying like, okay, there's no biological point in time where it kicks in, it 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 has to be the social domain that says, no, stop, slow your role. Mm. And then you start to let that come into your mind and then you accept that as reality yeah yeah i i i absolutely think it has to do with the social domain in that context it could also start with the home domain if you're in a family that 
social home. Yeah. You know, that isn't really supportive of you. And, right. You know, says, yeah. no, you know, how many, how many families we have who say, you know, you're never going to make it. You know, you're just not right. going to make it. And then you wind up being brilliant, going to law school or medical school or mm-hmm. whatever school, and you mm-hmm. start doubting. You know, college in, boy. In in <laughs> when I started medical school, the, the very first thing, very first day, there we are, you know, 150 or so of us, first day of medical school, and the director puts an equation on the board. P equals MD. All you need to do is pass. <laughs> and I don't think anyone believed it. Yeah. I think anyone believed it, you know? Yeah, it's it's one of the things that we're starting to look at in the research is, is kind of thinking about that social domain is also looking at kind of social characteristics and social statuses related to kind of race and ethnicity, SES, gender. These types of things are important to look at when we're, we're saying who's experiencing imposter phenomena most likely or in what situations. And then you look at the typical kind of, you know, organization and you might see that it's predominantly white, predominantly male. And then you can start to see why there might be feelings of inadequacy um, or self-doubt when you're entering, you know, an organization or a group where you're the only one. And so that 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 social context will feel overwhelming to some extent and be like, why am I the only this must have just happened because of A, B or C. Right. And so that's, again, another area where the research needs to go. Um, it has been, and that's majority of the research in the samples have been with women and, and uh, people from minoritized backgrounds. And so we're starting to see now kind of tease that out and, and, and look at it a little bit deeper. Um, but yeah, to get to that social context, that's where, that's where it needs to go. And then in, in, in the article, you talk about the tactical component, the strategic oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. imposterism. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk a bit more about that? Sure. Uh, so this is this is I mean, all of it's fun to talk about, but the strategic imposterism was it was a concept that was a little bit buried in the literature, uh, hadn't had a lot of voice yet, hadn't had a lot of amplification, um, but it was in there. And I thought it was intriguing. And then my co-authors really thought it was intriguing in terms of of how it's utilized, why it's utilized. And then when you think about it, you definitely have seen it in action. So it's the idea of. Yeah. Yeah. What is it? What is it? Yeah. So it's the idea of kind of uh, belittling, belittling yourself and your achievements on purpose, not really having a low self-confidence or an in- inadequate view of your achievements. Uh, so the accuracy is there, the confidence is there, but what you're doing is you're playing the game and you're saying, oh, uh, I'm not going to do so. You're telling people, oh, I'm not going to do so well here. I'm not very good. I'm not very smart in this, or this isn't my cup of tea. And what you do in the process is you, you, su- you set the expectations low for your peers and maybe your advisors and your leaders. And so when you hit those markers, they're like, oh, see, you, you're doing great. You're fantastic. So you're, you're automatically setting, like, it's almost like a long con. You're setting yourself up to be perceived as someone who might have imposter phenomena or who might have a low self-concept or low self-confidence. But in reality, you're utilizing it strategically in a way to actually, you know, beef yourself up in the long run and, and almost give you a boost uh, to others. It's it's a really, and, and I, the moment I started writing about it, I was like, oh, I've seen this a ton. Yeah, really interesting. And, and that's, that's nothing yeah, to take away from, yeah. I don't want to take away from imposter phenomenon and all that's a real thing that actually happens. Yeah. This is just a, um, you know, kind of an, al- an element of it, if you will. 
I would imagine there's a fail safe mode there too, to say, well, maybe I can't get all the way there. So if I lower that bar down there, then if I fail, it's yeah. not that bad. It wasn't my fault because I right. wasn't supposed to be there anyhow. Uh, to some extent you could utilize it. I mean, there's, there's kind of coping mechanisms that we utilize to kind of do that to ourselves in terms of, um, well, I'm going to almost detriment myself yeah. So that if I don't achieve, I have an excuse, right? This yeah. is a little bit different where you're not so much, you're not cutting your legs off from under yourself. You're just setting others' expectations down through this kind of imposter pathway. When in reality, you, you're going to, you're pretty sure you're going to rock it, but you want to make sure that you keep expectations lower so that you even get a higher boost. Got it. Yeah. And if you don't rock it, well, no. Yeah, they, then what have you lost? Right. What have you lost? Yeah. But that's not the expectation, right? You expect to rock it. Well, you're, you're I, in, in the, with the strategic imposterism, you're, you're going to, you're, you don't, you, you still have confidence and you still have an accurate view of your abilities. So whether or not you, your, your belief in yourself is still there. We'll put yeah. it that way. Yeah. In the article, you talk about human beings being wired against having an accurate awareness of ourselves and others. I got to know more about that. How does that connect with imposter phenomenon? So, so we are riddled with cognitive biases and, and kind of a cognitive psychologist could speak much better to this than I can. But in terms of how it relates to imposter phenomena or even humility, we, we, the, we, our biases for ourselves are to protect our self-image. So we are usually using downward comparisons for ourselves. So, and what I mean by that is we're using others who may not be as high achieving or may not have as much or kind of resource wise may not be where we're at as our comparisons so that we can protect we, oh, look at me, here I am. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually doing pretty well. Um, we're also, we're gonna have a biased self-concept in terms of we actually load our confidence pretty high. There's a number of studies that show that like, I think it's even just US uh, Americans think awfully high of themselves uh, compared to other countries. No. Yeah, but but I, I think it, honestly, I think it's just a natural bias that most people have. We really have a high self view. Um, and again, that's for protective factors uh, to go into social interactions and to engage with other people. If you think about it, if we if we held like kind of a, a lower self-image of ourselves, and we went to go talk to someone we didn't know or, uh, you know, went for a job interview, I mean, we, it would be hard to have those interactions, be hard to make them work. Um, so what's also interesting is we're kind of biased against our biases. We don't even know, you know, and we're protected from that as well. So with imposter phenomena, you'd think that these cognitive, these protective cognitive, these psychological resources that we have would come into play and allow us to see ourselves for our authentic, you know, abilities and, and really um, understand and kind of provide that confidence that we need to say, actually, no, I, I do belong here, you know, and I, I am just as good as everyone here. And what's really interesting is that what they find with some of the, with some of the studies on imposter phenomena, although they can negatively impact work and productivity uh, and going for next steps, that some people still do quite well like where they'll rate high on imposter phenomena, but they're actually doing very well. So even this constant um, a presentation of, hey, you're doing great in terms of their achievements, it's not registering. It's not coming across for some people. So we need to start understanding kind of how we can, we can break down those barriers. And we went over a few of those before. Uh, but in terms of humility, uh, which we can talk about a little bit later, those biases also come into play in terms of 
not a really encouraging us to be our most humble selves. Before we get into humility, which I which I totally yeah. want to get into the humility yeah. piece of it. Is there a fueling of imposter syndrome, kind of like the fear of failure that works for people also, where it's like, it keeps me going because I don't want to be found out? So so there's been some scholars uh, in the medical field, um, as well as other fields that have talked about that having that little element of imposter phenomena being a, a little bit of a positive in terms of that fuel and being like, hey, you know what, that keeps your competitive edge right there. So maybe we shouldn't be so scared of it. And in turn, uh, and, and it is in the, in the same kind of sentence, they'll say maybe a good a good side effect of this is humility. Maybe you'll be taking some bites of humble pie and realizing that there are others that are just as good, uh, if not better, than you in certain things. Uh, so there are people who make that that argument. Um, what what I would say to that is sure, let's keep that right there. Let's put that over there. But let's also see, hey, wait, who, what types of people, what's going on, what types of situations, what kind of context is imposter phenomena most likely? Because it can be detrimental psychologically in terms of mental health. So how do we, how do we maybe keep the good stuff, this understanding of humility, but then also make sure that we're not, people aren't suffering uh, and minimizing their abilities, uh, you know, in that way. We want to maximize potential. There we go. Hi, Max. I am. Mark, because I, I know that this this has been something on your mind for a while. That's why we're so excited to, to have Barrett here. But what was it for you, Mark, that that really prompted this this interest? Well, I I tend to believe that everybody, you know, like anxiety, right? Everybody has a a level of anxiety. I think everybody has a level of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I or I keep saying syndrome because that's how I I was raised thinking so imposter phenomenon however are do certain people have more than others and you know dr joe you and i have talked many times strategically about where we want this show to go where doc where the drug story theater you know one of the goals uh professor is that every sixth and seventh grader in the world and their guardians are able to uh, consume and and uh, enjoy and understand and embrace uh, drug story theater, right. and we talk about why not, what's yeah. holding us back, what yeah. is it necessarily that is not allowing us to bring that out, right? Mm -hmm. And whether it's the smallest things, right? So am I worthy? You know, what is it and how, what, A, what's the antidote? What, what is, what's the other side of it? Is it humility? Is it the fear of having delusions of grandeur, right? So mm -hmm. gosh forbid, somebody says you're delusional. You right. can't possibly get this in front of every sixth and seventh grader. You can't possibly achieve the success that yeah. you see. And that's where for me, it, it comes back to the home and social domain, Dr. Joe, of, of the I am, where it, it really is where I want to dig in and discover further. But is there something more simple than that? Is there something more logical that is out there? Love to hear it. If you're asking me. Yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah. But then then I say, I, I feel like, you know, when you're talking about achievement, taking next steps, 
um, you know, feeling as though, hey, I want I want this to go big or I want this to be bigger. I think it has the potential to do this. It, it's that there's always going to be the gremlin on your shoulder saying, no, dummy, like, no, that, that you're, what were you thinking about? That's, I think, a common thing that we all have kind of we have, you know, the two the angel and the devil on our side thinking, telling one telling us no, one telling us do it. You know, I think it's really important to be realistic and, and, and accurate in what can be done and then effective planning in terms right. of getting there. And that just raises confidence. I, I mean, a lot of the leadership literature talks about, you know, establishing quick wins. So, yeah, your ultimate goal is all sixth and seventh graders. But there's some quick wins out there that might be all sixth and seventh graders in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Then it's all in New England. Mm -hmm. Then it's all in this. And so it's setting the stage for success at, at increments until all of a sudden it's there, until the momentum. So building momentum and building more of that fervor and interest. And I feel like with imposter phenomena, like it's, it's not so much like I can't take this idea further. It's a personal of I'm not good enough for, for amongst these people. And so it's a little bit different in terms of an, like, an achievement. It's more or less of I don't feel like my abilities and talents are as good as these other people that I'm working with. And I'm a fraud and they're going to figure it out. And what we need to be doing is really encouraging leaders of organizations to be not only cultivating a sense where folks come in, you know, with great onboarding, uh, talking about their achievements and, and cultivating a culture of acknowledgement rather than a culture of deficiency, which is a majority of organizations. And that's in my humble opinion, is that a lot of times we we talk to people about what they could do next rather than, hey, you're doing this X, Y and Z really well. And then setting the stage for here's how I want you to achieve. Rather, we're saying you're not doing this for the next step. You're not doing this for the next step. And that can immediately make you feel like, well, then what am I doing? So if we want to start kind of uh, minimizing uh, the impact or the effect of imposter phenomena, it's creating organizations in which people come in, they feel like they fit, they feel like they belong, regardless of the other rock stars in the room, they themselves can see themselves as a part of the organization itself. Whether they feel they're as smart as them or not, they're a part of the organizations and feel like they have a voice and something to add. Yeah. And that so there's is, a safety component to that, right? Oh, so we People can talk about, you know, I mean, even, even the, the fundamental element of psychological safety in terms of being able to speak up in a group. I mean, that, that's a huge part of belonging. You go into a, any type of team or even organization and you don't feel like you can actually say something without retaliation or being called, you know, negative names or things like that. You're definitely not going to feel as smart enough as one in the group. But if you come in there and feel like you can be your authentic self, that you have good relations, that you can form relationships with others and that you actually have a voice in the organization that fits with your values. It's going to feel great, but you can see how that may relate to issues of kind of certain status characteristics like race, ethnicity, gender, where those organizations may may not feel like they were made for other individuals. Mm -hmm. And so folks are coming in with like, how do I share my voice? How do I how do I feel like a part of that? That's what we need to look at. Yeah. And I, I really would like to believe that the I am is that mm -hmm. because the I am is saying we're all doing the best we can. Let's look again at who we are, why we do what we do responding to based on the influence of the domains. And yeah. you take the words, look again and reverse them again and look mm -hmm. again to repeat something, look like a spectator 
Let's mm-hmm. respect why people do what they do. When's the last time you got angry at someone treating you with respect? Right, exactly. Right, And that leads to value. Respect mm-hmm. leads to value. And value leads to the trust, Barrett, that yep. you're saying. The trust yep. that one needs to be able to share one's ideas without mm-hmm. worry you're going to be seen as less valuable. Exactly. So, exactly. Is, so that is sort of an antidote. It's a social antidote to imposter phenomenon. Yeah. Yep. Other people help you with the antidote. Exactly. I mean, again, it's it's if you think about like I like to really look at belongingness as a big, big antidote to imposter phenomenon. And there's so many components of belongingness. But again, one of those biggest parts is the relationships. And so if you feel like you have quality relationships, you know, at least good enough and consistent, then you can see exactly how those go. And when you have quality relationships, there's an element of trust, there's respect, there's generativity to some extent in terms of even others. So there's all those things that you're talking about that kind of fill into that, that I think would have a positive impact on that sense of imposter phenomenon. It is about the relationship. It is, and you know, from a psychological, psychiatry point of view, there's the brain tool we use for that is theory of mind. Yeah. We can't see someone's mind, so we have to guess and theorize what they think or feel. Yeah. What we want to know is what are they thinking and feeling about me? It has been an exciting and thought provocative discussion. And, you know, we usually say the, the two questions a little later, but I do think we should bring them in now mm-hmm. um, because I think we can really dig deep with it. So, you know, the, the I am is saying we're all doing the best we can responding to an influence by the four domains that we've been talking about, your home domain, your social domain, those are outside, and the internal domains of your biological domain and the IC domain. Because the domains interact, a small change in any of the domains can have a big effect. Don't need to change everything. So Barrett, given what we're talking about tonight, what small change can you recommend to our listeners? So to some extent, in terms of uh, imposter phenomena, it's that's one of those things where that's going to be very contextual. And it's it's hard to talk about what's a small change you can do besides, you know, believing in yourself and and trusting your abilities and and kind of going through or a small thing you could do with that is um, really make sure you keep a kind of a list of achievements and abilities and notes. I mean, I know a lot of my professors like to keep my professor friends like to keep kind of notes from their students that say, thank you so much for all that you did. You really changed my life. So to some extent, it's keeping a record uh, an actual explicit record of, of, of achievements and of like, thank you notes and of things that you have done to remind yourself of the, of the journey you've had. And, and also to remind yourself that you're, you know, people did, it wasn't, it wasn't luck that you're there. It, it wasn't your charm. <laughs> you might be charming, but it wasn't your charm. You know, it was more than likely your abilities and, and your talents that brought you there. But one of the things, and, and this is kind of where I'd like to shift gears a little bit, if you don't mind, and we didn't get too much into humility and talking about humility, but it does have a lot to do, with, you know, in the, in the paper, we compare it with imposter phenomena. And, and the idea of humility in general is really kind of seeing yourself accurately in terms of your abilities and your limitations. It's the idea of uh, you actually have to have a lot of self-confidence to have humility. Um, but it's also knowing that you're one small part of a much larger structure and organization in terms of being a part of a team or even within a universality of it, right? And it's kind of having a low self-focus. So being also being kind of somewhat other-oriented 
um, and kind of losing yourself in the sense of others in a positive way. And so one of the recommendations in terms of small changes that I would have, because I do think having humility actually does limit the impact of imposter phenomena if you experience it. So I would encourage listeners to really practice their humility as a way of maybe uh, staving off imposter phenomena. And one of the, uh, I would say, small changes or practices, because we have a, my center, the Center for Advancing Interprofessional Practice Education and Research, actually has a, a training in humility. But some of the things that we actually go over the workouts that we cover are things that we can do every day. One of them, one of my favorites, absolute favorites, and this can go for a lot of things. This works for empathy, this works for humility, it works for all the things, is this notion of giving others the gift of your attention when you are listening to them. Uh, so a lot of times when we engage in conversation with a back and forth, we're already thinking about what we're gonna say next before the person has finished or how we can interject ourselves. So giving the gift of your attention to someone else while they're speaking, kind of listening mindfully, bringing yourself back to the conversation, back to what they're saying, rather than drifting off into your own world. Really, that kind of lowers that self-focus, really pushes the focus on somebody else and also allows you to understand that you're in a conversation with someone else and you're just a part of it, right? And that you're giving that gift. So that's one one small practice. And there's a few others I can go over, but that's one small practice I think that we can all do with our partners, our friends, our colleagues, on a regular basis. Yeah, well, we say exactly the same. You're not talking to someone, you're talking with someone. Exactly. You know, you're not talking at them, talk with them. Mm -hmm. But it is that in just enhancing and increasing somebody else's value. Can you talk a little bit about how people can get some of your, your work and, and these sure. things? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a majority of our, our uh, kind of e-learning courses are built towards health professionals. Um, and really practicing those um, those team-based skills. But uh, we have stuff on just the fundamentals of interprofessional education. We have stuff that's geared towards the clinical learning environment. We have stuff that's geared towards primary care. But the one I was referring to is uh, the interprofessional training in empathy, affect, humility, and mindfulness. And it's really about cultivating the muscles related to kind of emotional intelligence, uh, other orientation, communication skills. And again, it's geared towards health professionals, but anyone can use it. There's workouts nested within each of the modules. And those are available on our website, um, which is, again, if you just Google uh, CAPER, C-A-I-P-E-R and A-S-U, um, that's that would it, the first thing will come up. Um, but again, it's the Center for Advancing Interprofessional Practice, Education and Research. And through our website, you'll see um, you know, all of the offerings that we have there. And we're developing more. We're developing one in structural competency. We're developing one in intellectual humility. And we're actually developing one in belongingness. Mm. You know, I encourage people to go there. We'll post it on our site, right, Great. Tom? So that we Appreciate can do that. It. Tom, is, is, how is this relating to you? What are you thinking about this? Oh, I mean, like Mark said, I think it affects everyone, but you know, being technically in entertainment, you got to be a multi hyphenate. And so you're always wondering, am I good enough at this or that? So, um, Barrett, I jumped from uh, Bridgewater State University the month after graduating. I was at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, and so I, again, I got lucky. Like, I, this is. Are you sure? Are you yes. sure? Uh, yes. So, I mean, I, I don't think it's going to be in place. I don't think yeah. I don't think it's a black mark on yourself to admit that you had you were in the right place at the right time. Sometimes yeah. like I'm here because I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, I made it my own. But yeah, there you go. 
How did you get to that right place, though? That's a question I always ask people. Like, there's yeah. a reason you were at that right place. Tom, what, what's what's the phrase, right? I worked hard to be this lucky, but I yeah. there's always, there's, life is Mario Kart. Sometimes you get a power-up. That's true. And sometimes you get a red shell. And, <laughs> and that's yeah. fine. Yeah, that's fine. But as long as you can acknowledge yourself, again, it's, it's keeping... So one of the best things about humility is that it kind of acts as a leveling mechanism. It rather than getting so high on yourself and being like, "Look at all that I've achieved," Dunning Kruger, a, a, a humility allows you to kind of stay at that level and say, "Wait, you know, yeah, I've done really well, but so have a number of others, and there were a number of factors that came into play that got me there, but I did use my uh, my opportunities very well." Right, and so it allows us to kind of see us in a more realistic and accurate. Uh, kind of picture um, where imposter phenomena, and I and I don't disagree with you, Mark. I do think we do have a level of imposter phenomena in us. Like it, it could be awoken. Right. Uh, that's why, that, and, and that kind of gets to one of your points. You were saying how you know you you had referred to it as a syndrome, and one of the reasons that the literature is moving away from calling it a syndrome is because there's not a di- it's not in the DSM. It's not a diagnosable, no diagnosable uh, criteria. It's a contextual and situational phenomenon. That kind of comes and goes, right? And it really depends on a number of elements about it. So, you know, we, we we it can be triggered at some point in our lives where we start to realize, or in multiple times. But again, it comes back to for me as a sociologist, looking at for others, it seems to happen quite often because our institutions and organizations may not have been built for them effectively. And so now we have to restructure them, look at those pathways, make sure we have a diversification that a lot of voices are being heard. And there's people at the table. And so that really gets to the second truth of the I am, right? Mm -hmm. Because everyone has one. Everyone's interested in what you think or feel about them through their IC domain, which has an effect on their biological domain, because, you know, it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected and you're part of someone's home or social domain. This means the second truth, you control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Professor Bauer, what kind of influence do you Uh, want to be? I love this question. Um, I think if more people thought about this question, they would have a more direct focus of their work. Uh, One of the best questions, it's not, this this is a fantastic question. It reminded me of a question, uh, of, of something I was told by an associate dean when I was going up for tenure. And they were asking, and I was saying, well, what do I need to actually get to this point. Like what are the what are the criteria exactly? And how do I present that in a package? And this associate dean who uh, kind of out of nowhere, and I wasn't expecting this said, tell us your brand. And I didn't like that initially. I thought that that was a very kind of commercialization of the work I was doing, the brand, I branding myself. No, I don't wanna do that. But in reality, the, the, the term that, that he was using was actually exactly what you're saying is the influence he meant to say influence and what kind of influence do you want to have how can how does your work have an influence tell us how you're influencing kind of the market in that way and so i take yours in a much broader sense which hopefully is kind of the way you're thinking about it and my i see my influence as someone who uh kind of kicks up dust i like to like i said make the familiar strange um, I like to influence people in terms of and, and organizations in looking at things that they're taking for granted. I want them to put a different lens on it and say, whoa, wait a second. That's what I like to do. And sometimes that ruffles a little feathers. 
some, and, I, and I'm sure I've gotten a little bit of a reputation of kind of, like I said, kicking up dust and maybe poking the bear a little bit. But in terms of influence and the influence I want to have, that's what I want to do for the scholarship and what I want to do for the research. I want to raise up these issues and say, wait a second, we need to think about this and the way we're talking about it. And that's the kind of influence I like to see. What are you hoping the outcome will be of that type of influence? So, and this is another amazing question because that exact question kind of gets to where, why I started studying humility in the first place. So what type of, what type of outcome? Ideally, I will be a, a world-renowned scholar that gets taken in keynotes and I go everywhere, right? And that's, and I'm spreading the, the word on imposter phenomenon, humility and empathy and emotional contagion. We're talking about these amazing things. In reality, at best, in 20 years, 30 years, I'll be a footnote in some graduate student's dissertation. That's the reality. And that's okay. That's perfectly fine. The outcome is, again, at some point, my influence, whether it's in my teaching or the research I'm doing, I might hit a few students, a few scholars, a few people to think about things differently. I may have, have, have put a light bulb somewhere. That's perfect for me. That's all I can ask. And I always say that the most influence a sociologist a professor can ever have is on teaching sociology 101 and having just one or two people, like just have them think about the things that they do on a regular basis or see and open their eyes just a little bit more to what's actually happening, making that familiar strange. So that's that's the outcome for me. That'd be great. And, you know, it would be wonderful if we all really understood how we influence each other and what we want to do. And you're right. We may not be remembered, but we can still have a legacy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Michael, Barrett, this has just been fantastic. Thank you so much, Professor, for coming. Uh, the the pleasure's been mine. You know, yeah. folks, tune in one more time. How can they find your material? So you can go, you can either Google me, which is probably the easiest because my name is pretty unique. So you can find basically everything I do. You can find my research. You can find all the videos I've been on and that kind of stuff. I did a TEDx talk on emotional contagion. You can find that. Um, all those things, if you Google me, you can also Google uh, the Center for Advancing Interprofessional Practice Education and Research, or just type in uh, C-A-I-P-E-R space A-S-U. And that should bring up our center as well. Thank you so much. Excellent. My pleasure. Folks, listen in, and we will see you all next week. Bye, Mark. Bye, Tom. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice for a new episode each week and share this with everyone and anyone. If you have any questions or comments or have an idea for another guest, feel free to shoot me an email at mstyles at styles-law.com. That's M-S-T-I-L-E-S at styles-law.com. And if you are a real estate professional, be sure to check us out on our private exclusive Facebook page, The Real Estate School at 892 for content and Massachusetts continuing education opportunities. Be well, folks. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice. 
or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Please seek legal, financial, or tax advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.